Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Wayne Oxt has been around books all of his life. His first job as a teenager was shelving books at the Laurel County Public Library. He continued to be around books doing his homework. He received a bachelor's degree in history and a master's degree in library science from the University of Kentucky. He held various positions at the Kenton County Public Library, becoming the library's director in 1999. He was appointed Kentucky State Librarian and Commissioner of the Kentucky Department for Libraries and Archives in 2006 and served until his retirement in 2015. In addition to being a lifetime member of the Friends of the Kentucky Libraries, he serves on the board of the Kentucky Historical Society, the Jesse Stewart Foundation, and Welcome House of Northern Kentucky. He's a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and available to come to your civic group or church or gathering of uh, any size and talk about a couple of the things that we're going to discuss today, something he put together on all the presidents who have visited Kentucky, and then his, uh, his latest endeavor, uh, at least for us, uh, on bookmobiles and uh, all of those uh, wonderful stories uh, from our childhood and maybe from our adulthood too. Wayne, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Your uh, library background uh, is extensive uh, in that you started uh, kind of messing around with books as a, as a kid. T- tell me about your growing up uh, at the library. Yeah, well, my parents made sure I could read at an early age. They were um, both uh, completely dedicated to making sure I got the best education I could. Um, my father was first-generation college student, and my mother also attended a business school, which was pretty unusual in those days. And uh, they both wanted to make sure that uh, me and my brother and my sister uh, went to college. That was something that was just expected. And they uh, made sure we had, a, we had a really strong education. They took us to the library very, very early and uh, just fell in love with, with all the books, spent as much time there as I could. So you grew up in in the county, in Laurel County? In Laurel County, grew up in Laurel County, yes. And what do you remember about the library at that time? Is it still in the same location today? No, no. At that point, the library was on 4th Street in a a building that uh, books were just crammed, crammed in there everywhere. But it's a wonderful place to to learn to read and to, to just explore the world. Of course, now they, uh, the library's moved out out of uh, downtown London into a beautiful, incredible new library, which I'm very proud of. Uh, so, uh, but the library then was a very special place. I um, am, am fortunate enough to, to do some traveling around, and uh, we do some of our primetime family reading time programs in public libraries. And just recently on a couple of trips uh, here and there, I went, uh, was able to go to some new libraries that I had not been uh, to. Uh, for example, uh, I, I believe uh, Litchfield has a has a new facility, and you're talking about a, a brand new library in Laurel County that you're proud of. I, I think some of our libraries are just magnificent. They are. Um, we've been able to build um, a number of libraries in recent years uh, with the help of the Commonwealth. Uh, the state um, has um, 
been able to provide some funding for library construction over the last few years. And we've been able to replace some buildings that were built in the 1960s and 70s that really didn't meet the community needs any longer. And you know, since that time, the, uh, the way libraries operate has changed greatly. You know, in the 60s and 70s, we, uh, we needed tall book stacks and, and uh, uh, we didn't provide all the services that we provide now. We did, uh, those buildings didn't have room for computers. Uh, they didn't have a lot of meeting space or, uh, or places where people could gather. And that's what we need now. So uh, the state has seen that need and we've been able to build buildings that better meet the needs of their communities. You know, when I when I first became a librarian and first started my career, uh, we provided information, but it was it was from books. That was the that was the or the card catalog. format. Yeah, right. Use the card catalog. <laughs> now libraries have transitioned where we still provide information, but uh, now each library, each each county determines the needs in that community, and we've uh, designed our services around those needs. And it, and um, some some communities it means need lots of space for meetings. Uh, many communities we need lots of space for technology because the library is a place where people can access that if they don't have internet service at home, whatever. So, over the last few years we've been able to de to design buildings to meet the needs of the communities, and I, I think we've done a very very good job of doing that. Are libraries still relevant? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what, we, what we've learned is that um, more people are using libraries, but they're using them in different ways, not the traditional ways. We still check out books, but we're providing so many more services and providing information in so many different ways that um, it's, it's really, the usage is, is just spectacular. Um, you know, uh, we're now involved so much more now in the educational process. We work with schools on all different levels. From, from pre-K, pre we provide programs for very small children to through college. You know, there are college students that come in and use our technology, use our services. A lot of those colleges provide classes online, and the libraries are involved in that. So, so we're so much more involved in the educational process. We're also involved in the uh, uh, workforce development. You know, uh, uh, my library in Erlanger, uh, where I know you've been. Yes, oh, it's um, another beautiful library, it, and uh, it it's uh, well. You go ahead and finish your story, but it's, uh, it's a beautiful facility. Yeah, um, they have they have a group that meets every week, a uh, group of people who are who are looking for jobs or or hoping to uh, improve their uh, employment prospects. Um, they meet every week. Then recently, they had a, had a very large job fair for. Uh, for companies, you know, normally we think of job fair as, as people who need help finding jobs. Mm -hmm. Well, in that area, it's companies that need to recruit folks. Mm -hmm. So uh, they had a big job fair, and uh, companies were able to recruit folks to work for them. Mm -hmm. So, so it, it, we're just doing so many different things now. Well, one of the, I may be late to this um, uh, conversation, but uh, somebody just recently told me about uh, Libby. Uh, and uh, what is being offered uh, from the uh, Lexington Fayette County Public Library? Are, are you familiar with uh, with the Audible uh, app? From and I, I, I'm just now assuming, uh, being late to uh, this conversation, and uh, that maybe all libraries had access to this, and 
so now you're you're nodding uh, that you're not familiar with it. And what I had to do is reactivate my card, and then it's so easy to download uh, an app. But it is a, a um, an app which allows you to check out a, a, an audio book for okay. a period of time. And now it maybe has different names uh, in different places, but uh, as someone who uh, travels a, a bit and is in the car, uh, if, I, if I'm not listening to a podcast or uh, WEKU, for example, I'm listening to a novel or um, a, a nonfiction piece. And it really, uh, uh, as you know, uh, paid uh, audible that's the name of the company. Uh, audio services are sometimes expensive. And again, if you can do this through your library, I mean, that's just genius. So I, I'm, I'm really impressed with that. Yeah, yeah it is. So that's the way libraries are changing. Absolutely. Well, yep. Wayne, uh, we, we could talk uh, books and libraries uh, all day long, but I want to kind of uh, ease into the history of the bookmobile service in Kentucky, uh, which is one of your talks. And I, I think it's kind of fascinating. Uh, Oftentimes I run into people that want to tell me about uh, when they were a small child in the country, but in the city too, uh, the bookmobile came up and, and it was something to look forward to. So I want you to tell me a little bit about uh, how Kentucky was so prominent in, in the bookmobile business uh, early on. Yeah. Well, back, Bill, back in um, early 1950s, people began to realize how far Kentucky was behind in library service. We, we had very few libraries. And in fact, about uh, li libraries were mainly located in the cities. We found that about 80% of rural Kentucky had no library service at all. And when the statistics were done nationally, Kentucky ranked at the, near the bottom in library service. We were 47th out of 48 states. Uh, North Dakota was 48th. And North Dakota disputed that fact. <laughs> so, but, but library service is virtually non-existent. A mm. uh, group of citizens uh, undertook the process of, of trying to fix that. And the Friends of Kentucky Libraries, which I'm now involved in, as you mentioned, uh, held a meeting in Louisville in 1952. Jesse Stewart was the guest speaker. Jesse Stewart inspired that group to do something about the poor library service. A businessman in Louisville named Harry Schachter uh, took up the charge. He and Mrs. Mary Bingham, mm -hmm. wife of Barry Bingham, the, mm -hmm. the publisher of the Courier-Journal, headed the campaign. And over the next two years, they raised the money uh, from private citizens to buy 100 bookmobiles, fill them with books, and put them on the road. Did they know what a bookmobile was at that time? Or what was there another state that was using one? Or Yeah, well, actually, Kentucky had six bookmobiles on the road. Mm -hmm. uh, a lady by the name of uh, Mrs. Mary Belknap Gray in Louisville, a philanthropist, had uh, purchased, uh, well, she purchased six bookmobiles. The first one was an old Army ambulance mm -hmm. that they converted. Mm -hmm. and she, bought, she bought five more, uh, named them in honor of her, in memory of her some of her family members and put them on the road. They were so successful that they felt this was the way to provide library service. Um, one of the reasons I think this project is so fascinating is because it was a situation where it was completely citizen-driven. A couple of citizens took the initiative. Uh, they developed a committee from folks across the state, uh, mainly 
philanthropists and uh, business people, and they pull this off. Um, there's not very many examples you can find where um, uh, you know the government was not the instigator, mm-hmm. politicians mm-hmm. weren't the instigators, but it was citizen driven, not librarians. Completely citizen driven, and over two years they they uh, pulled off this project, and at the end of it, uh, Kentucky was at the very top in library service. Hmm. Uh, but it's a, a very interesting process. Did a lot of that story or, or a lot of their initiative grow out of the pack horse librarians? Um, actually, yes, actually it did. That was that was the um, uh, the generation of Mrs. Gray's. Uh, initiative to buy the very first bookmobile was was from the Pack Horse librarians. And course, describe and tell us about what a Pack Horse okay. librarian was. Well, nineteen thirties, um, deep deep in the depression, um, the Pack Horse project was developed by the WPA, by the Roosevelt administration mm-hmm. developed it. Um, there were virtually no books in eastern Kentucky in the eastern Kentucky mountains during that time. Uh, Sears and Roebuck catalog and the Bible were virtually the only books that were available. There were no libraries, no no collections. The folks, of course, were very isolated. There was no funding for books. So um, the uh, Pack Horse librarians um, developed libraries, basic libraries, and the librarians would take uh, um, their uh, books by, by horse, by mule, to isolated homes. Uh, they would take them to community centers. Uh, the books came from Frankfurt. They would, they would put them on a, a boat, go up the Kentucky River, where they would un- unload them at, at uh, central locations. Pack horse librarians would then um, make the, take their collections to people's homes, um, some schools, uh, community stores, wherever they could, they could find that people would be interested in doing this. Uh, once a month, they would deliver the books. The service was was so very popular, uh, people loved it, and it was uh, really the very first books that were that were, were taken to the mountains. And um, then, of course, the uh, World War II kind of interrupted the service and ended the the funding. Mm. It was after the war that Mrs. Gray uh, wanted to continue the service somehow, so she uh, began to provide some bookmobiles. Was, uh, so World War II uh, ended uh, the Pack Horse Librarian uh, initiative in eastern Kentucky, and, and it didn't come back, so so bookmobiles. Right. So you said uh, 100 they, they purchased? Uh, the bookmobile project purchased 100 bookmobiles that they uh, sent across the state. Went all over the state, state. Right. Yeah. yeah, all over right. the state. Mm-hmm. How has... Uh, because we still see bookmobiles today, uh, how do how have they changed, and and how um, have they uh, matured o- over these decades? Well, uh, to continue that that story, many of the libraries we enjoy today grew out of the bookmobile service. Mm-hmm. So, bookmobile bookmobile would be assigned to a county, the county would be responsible for funding it, and then uh, people would enjoy the service value the service, and the library would grow out of that. Hmm. Now, uh, in almost uh, all those cases, while the library would be located in the county seat, but the bookmobile would continue to provide remote service. Mm-hmm. And um, as the years passed, bookmobiles, just like libraries, have changed in, in the types of services they can provide. Uh, 
you know, now not only do they provide books, but but a lot of the bookmobiles uh, provide technology, uh, and they provide uh, uh, audio books and a lot of other services that mm-hmm. that you can from the library. Mm-hmm. So. Um, the the way they the stops have have changed you know nor, use mm-hmm. um, when I drove the bookmobile as you I drove did one too? I did I really? drove the bookmobile in the seventies in, in Laurel County I uh, know in Kenton County oh really Kenton okay County, yes in the seventies yes uh uh-huh. yeah. yeah and um, huh. we we would stop at schools and at individuals homes mm-hmm. uh, we don't do as much of that now it's more central locations in the county mm-hmm. uh, Kenton County services. Now, not a traditional bookmobile, but they have a vehicle that visits uh, daycares, preschools, mm-hmm. where they leave collections of books, and they'll provide story times on mm-hmm. with the staff from the bookmobile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've kind of transitioned our service, uh, just like libraries have transitioned mm-hmm. service. Are in some of the bookmobiles uh, today? Are are there training tools, uh, computers, or are they equipped uh, to, to help people in that way? Maybe many fill the, out an application? or Many of the bookmobiles do have computers, yeah. and they are able to do the service from there uh-huh. uh, so people can access technology. Well, that's a, a, a fascinating story in itself, uh, but now uh, we can always return to that. Well, let me let's ask you one question about libraries, which is always comes up. In fact, somebody just asked me this uh, this week uh, in a conversation. I have no idea about what, but... Uh, it it uh, it was about libraries, and that's funding of libraries is is different from uh, county to county, city to city, um, in, in some ways. Um, so how how for the most part are libraries financed? In about one hundred of the counties, there is a library district set up so that a tax a property tax goes directly to the library. Now, in the other uh, 15 to 20, they're financed in, in several different ways. In Through li- city government? There's a, yes. And now, maybe some state funding? There, there is a, a small amount of state funding goes yeah. to each of the libraries. Yeah. That has been reduced over the years to, to its, vert, to its mm-hmm. uh, very small percentage mm-hmm. of the library's income. Most of it comes from property tax in 100 counties. Now, in the, tr- in the remaining 20, uh, there's, there's several different ways it's, yeah. that libraries are funded. Uh, for example, in Louisville, it's funded directly from the city's budget. Hmm. as a allocation of the city's budget. They tried to pass a tax, and, and, uh, and, it, and, it, failed. and, and, and it failed. Right. Uh, that's happened in other places. Murray, uh, there was a vote there, but now they have uh, successfully... Callaway County has a library tax uh-huh, now. Uh-huh. Yeah, so so about a, about a hundred of the counties. In some do. in northern Kentucky, some some have a a property tax. I guess it's property tax. Yes, all uh, all the libraries in northern Kentucky have a property tax, oh, all a of dedicated them do now. property okay, tax. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for that. Mm-hmm. So let, let's move from libraries to uh, to presidents and how this uh, uh, conversation that that uh, that you've now put uh, in uh, on paper. Uh, come about and and what interested you about this was it original idea did somebody say you ought to look at this what tell me about it yeah about uh eight years ago president obama came to kentucky and i read the press information in the newspaper about the account of his visit and i just wondered how often that's happened i didn't remember it happening recently so so i started doing a little bit of research and found that um uh president's had not been to Kentucky that often, 
But when they did come, there was usually an interesting story. You know, wherever the president goes, he makes news. And it was interesting to find out why he came, where he went, who he saw when he was here, what happened. Um, And I also found that uh, not very much had been written about presidential travel at all, Mm -hmm. particularly to Kentucky. So the more research I completed, I thought, well, maybe this, maybe this would be an interesting story that other people would like to read. So it became a, a hobby. And then when I retired, I was able to devote more time to it. And I discovered that 27 of the presidents have actually visited Kentucky during their terms of office. They've come about 120 times through the years. And um, there was just often there was really an interesting story in history made. So it, uh, it tell us a few of those. Well, you know, I, I think um, it's it's always interesting to to see um, why the president came, and there's several, there's uh, many different I- interesting visits. But I always think of um, one of the visits made by President Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, he came in 1938. Came to Kentucky, um, and it was it made history because presidents normally didn't get involved in uh, party primaries. Uh, they, they stayed out of those. But at the time, it was a very critical time in, 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 in U.S. history because uh, the New Deal was stalling out. Mm-hmm. President Roosevelt's plans for the New Deal. Um, There's a lot of opposition from not only Republicans, but conservative Democrats who felt like the country was going too far to the left. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, he needed a support in Congress to continue his New Deal policies. And the, the person that he depended on the most was Alvin Barkley. Barkley was a majority leader who was, his, who was the manager for his New Deal uh, program. Barkley was up for re-election in 1938. Well, uh, Happy Chandler was governor at the time. His term was coming to a close, his first term as governor. And he wanted to get on the national stage. He had aspirations himself. So he decided he was going to take on Barkley in the primary for that seat. Mm-hmm. Chandler was more conservative and clearly not as favorable to the New Deal mm-hmm. as Barkley. Plus, uh, the president wanted Barkley to manage the whole program. So the president called Chandler into his office, in the, his Oval Office, and begged him not to run. Mm-hmm. Well, Chandler ignored that. Can you imagine being a fly on the wall in that conversation? I would love to have been there. Yeah. So And so uh, Chandler got in the race, and President Roosevelt decided he was going to make a campaign tour through Kentucky to speak on behalf of Barkley. <laughs> yeah. So he came 1938. He came to the Lat- first stop of the Latonia Racetrack. Oh, uh-huh. Northern Kentucky. Northern Kentucky. Huge crowd, 60,000 people to see the president. 60,000? 60, 60,000, yes, uh, there uh, businesses closed, schools, you know, it was in the summer, but businesses closed. Uh, I mean, there's a, a, just a tremendous crowd. People uh, took the railroads in from all over um, and um, for, for Roosevelt's speech. Well, who showed up but Governor Chandler? <laughs> you know, and he marched, he marched up on the speaker's stand and sat right there with Barkley and Roosevelt and all the Barkley supporters because this was a Barkley rally. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so he, uh, you know, so he actually he basically stole the show. Yeah. But the president endorsed Barkley. Uh-huh. 
and uh, on the stand. And then and he and President Roosevelt made three more speeches that day uh, in in Barclay's behalf. It was an interesting campaign because uh, you may know this, but uh, a very dirty campaign. Uh, Chandler got sick, and he claimed that Barclay's folks had poisoned him. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and actually, it was so dirty that um, we uh, the Hatch Act was yeah, passed as a result course. of that campaign. Yeah, yeah. But, which uh, is still relied on today and referred to. And, that's right. Yeah. But one thing that Roosevelt during that speech he uh, he made some statements that I think were pretty interesting because he had come through Kentucky in 1932 campaigning, made a campaign mm-hmm. trip through Eastern Kentucky actually. Mm-hmm. Not, and at that point, of course, the election was, was I mean, everybody knew he was going to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody blamed Hoover for the Depression. Mm-hmm. But he said that that trip through Kentucky impacted him more than anything in his life except uh, seeing the da- the destruction of World War One when he went to Europe. Mm-hmm. And that trip um, made him determine that he was going to help people recover from the Depression. So a lot of those Depression programs uh, came as a result of what he saw in Kentucky. So it was a very it, consequential trip. Um, you said it was, um, he, he stated it was the most impactful or had the greatest meaning uh, to him of, of a lot of his travels, if not. Hmm. Was it because of the of the poverty? And, yes. And he, said the, he said the poverty he could see from the train. When he stopped, when he stopped to speak, he'd look at the folks. He could see their hunger. He could see, you know, what they were wearing. He could see in their faces the toil that the depression had was was taken mm-hmm. on the, to, mm-hmm. the toll that it was taken on. So, uh, so I, you know, those trips do have an impact. We, I mean, it's all the same thing from uh, President Lyndon Johnson, who came in 1964 to, to Martin County. Yes. You know, he came. Uh, most folks don't know this, but President Kennedy was scheduled to come to Kentucky two weeks after his assassination. Hmm. Of course. Couldn't make that trip, but President Johnson followed followed up on it a few months later, because uh, there had been a series of articles in the New York Times on the poverty in Eastern Kentucky that had that the President Kennedy had first read and first understood the problem, and President Johnson followed him and to Kentucky, and um, he and um, he sat on sat on the steps of a cabin with with some Kentuckians to talk to them about about their situation what's going on in their lives. And um, when he left that cabin, I think, uh, very interesting, he, uh, you know, the press was not permitted to hear what, what was said with those Kentuckians. But when he turned around to come back to his car, he turned around to the fellow in the cabin and said, there's one thing I want you to do for me. Promise me that you'll keep your kids in school, mm. even the girls. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, then uh, Mrs. Johnson came back a few months later to to Breathitt County, where she uh, she visited some one room schools. But that trip made such an impact on him that a lot of the anti poverty programs that we still have today were developed by the mm-hmm. Johnson administration as a result of that trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's some really consequential trips that presidents have made. Well, those are uh, great stories, uh, Wayne, and uh, I, I think uh, I can tell in the tone of your voice uh, and the conversation uh, that we're having that you are uh, uh, so passionate about libraries and, and about history, too, and uh, serving uh, on the board of the Historical Society. And uh, But 
I know you run into this, and you find this uh, today too, that that our young people are sometimes just, um, they're not um, given a pathway to learn about history in Kentucky, and there, there's so much of it. And uh, I think it's so important that, that we continue to, at Kentucky Humanities and at the libraries, uh, at the Historical Society, at the Arts Council, uh, uh, of really um, urging uh, parents and, and kids to learn about Kentucky history. Yeah, if we are to solve the problems that we have, then I believe that we've got to understand where we came from. And we've got to understand the past if we're going to if we're going to deal with the future. And so it's really really important that we understand Kentucky. And we have, we have some unique problems, but I, I think if you understand the history, we have a fascinating history. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, up until the Civil War. Kentucky was uh, one of the one of the most um, not only one of the most prominent states, but um, we ranked in the top ten in in uh, in everything, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, I think we uh, we were in top five or top ten in per capita income. Mm-hmm. Uh, then after the Civil War, we were in the bottom, and we really have. I think we've been fighting fighting ever since that time mm-hmm. to recover. Of course, uh, Dr. Clark would remind us that it's because we have 120 counties. Well, that's <laughs> so that's for another yeah, uh, discussion yeah, right. another day. Uh, Wayne Oxt is a member of our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau. Uh, he's available uh, to you uh, by going to kyhumanities.org and uh, looking for the information there. If you uh, click on Programs and go to the Speakers Bureau, all of Wayne's uh, information is there, and he's got really. Um, I'm sure he could talk to you about anything, but he's got two uh, defined uh, talks that he does, uh, and he can present one of those, and uh, we just uh, appreciate it, and maybe someday you can come back and tell us some more presidential visit stories to Kentucky. I'd love to do that. Thanks, Wayne Oxt. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.